So Lord, I thank you so much for this uh, middle of the morning, and we're extraordinarily grateful to you. I thank you for everyone who's come and made it a priority to draw closer to you just by, by coming to your house, Lord. And I ask that you would soften our hearts. Soft heart is a gift. And I pray that you would remind us and as, as we move into this Christmas season that this has everything to do with celebrating you and your coming. And that if we're intentional about, about doing this, that there's a word that you have for us at this time, a blessing that you want to move into our lives if we'll just make room for you in the inn of our heart, as it were, make space for you. And so as best as we can, we just come right now to engage your word. I pray that you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see as we break this bread together and hopefully are nourished at a spiritual and deep level. So I just, we just want to embrace you, Lord, and we ask for your blessing over our time that we share. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen, Lord. All right, two passages we're going to look at. First one, commonly read around Christmas time from the book of Isaiah, the ninth chapter. It's an amazing portion of Scripture because it was written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And yet, every, many people who have read this cannot miss the prophetic you know, uh, aspect of it in terms of just what it says about the birth of Christ. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. He was thinking about a Messiah who was coming, a deliverer that God would raise up for this world. And he wrote these words. And it said, we read this together in Isaiah 9. I'll just read it. It says that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And again, light is such a part of Christmas. And Isaiah is talking about how those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land in the shadow of death, where death is the final word. Something has changed. Upon them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. Christmas is a time for cultivating joy. And they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why? Because, look at verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he goes on to talk about the blessing that this promised one brings. Isaiah anticipated the coming of the one who would change the world, who would change what it means to live and have a home beyond time. He was talking about God coming to us. And he described it as him coming in a way that was different than maybe other pe many of people would have anticipated, that he would come as a human being, and not just as a human being, but he would come born as a child and as a son. Now, he never saw the answer to these words. But flash forward, some almost 800 years, now 30 years past Jesus' birth, and we come to another occasion. And here's the complimentary passage that I really want to look at. It's not something that's commonly used around Christmas time, but it spoke to me. Because here we see, as we come to John 1, two friends, Philip and Nathaniel, who were both destined to become known as Disciples of Jesus, the part of the original band of followers. Uh, they're, I don't think they're the most well-known of the group. I mean, obviously, you think of Peter, you think of John, James, but they're maybe in that middle group. Nathaniel sometimes is called Bartholomew. 
But one of the things we're given in John's account in John 1 is this amazing exchange that occurs between Jesus and one of his disciples-to-be, Nathaniel. Nathaniel and Philip were friends. They were both very interested in the things of the Lord. They clearly talked a lot about God. They were both talking about what this meant, this coming of Messiah meant, and who it was. And so that's the background for what we're about to read. Let's look at it together. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, and by the way, these are words Jesus says to all of us, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That is, it was the town in which Andrew and Peter were born. He also was also a citizen, or that's where he lived. And Philip had obviously just made a decision to follow Jesus because he, he believed that he was the promised one, the Messiah, the one that Isaiah and the prophets had talked about, that it was, that was Jesus. But we will see that Nathaniel, uh, who is revealed here as a man uh, who is very honest and uh, sincere, and yet he also has a kind of cynical side to him, that he's not going to be duped by anybody. And so when his friend comes to him, Philip, and says to him, Listen, Nathaniel, you're not going to believe this. Notice here, he says, we have, found, we have found him, we have found the one. We have found him of whom Moses in the law, that is the, the scriptures in the first part of the Bible, the first five books, and also the prophets. We just read one of the prophets that foretold about the coming of Messiah, Isaiah. He says, we found the one that they've all told us was coming. Well, he's here. We've seen him. I've seen him. I've talked to him. And there's this pause. And you can get the sense that uh, for Nathaniel, he is like, all right, who is he? Tell me. And you almost get the impression that Philip knows that it's probably going to be hard to explain what he's about to say. Because he says, well, we found the one. Now, hold on. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel was absolutely unimpressed. <laughs> okay. Why? We, what would be the reason? He was, let's just say, he was certainly less than overwhelmed. He says to him, can anything good, <laughs> Philip, Philip, can anything good come out? Are you, are you serious? Has anything good ever come from Nazareth? Listen, my friend, I don't know what's gotten into you. I don't know what you're thinking. Because you see, we look at, we think as we read this, we go, well, Nazareth could be anywhere. Well, here's the thing. Nazareth was hardly the place of Messiah. It was a place that had a very bad reputation. I mean, we, we just got back from Israel. You, usually when you go to Israel, you split your trip up in two ways. Part of it is down south in Jerusalem, and that, that area you just can't miss because it's just got so much history. And we talked about some of the tension that's obviously still there now. But it's connected so deeply to our Lord. It, you can walk the, some of the steps where he walked. It's amazing. At the same time, Galilee, which is the region where Nazareth was located and where Jesus grew up, although he was born in Bethlehem, he grows up in Nazareth. It's his town, as it were. That in Nazareth, you know, you could still go... It, in, in that day, even though we think of Galilee, it's and it's beautiful, it's so, there's totally different feels to the two regions. I mean, Galilee is like the country. You know, it, it has rolling hills and it's green. It's got those sedate waters of the, of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. 
and you can imagine things. We were, you know, you can just imagine Jesus walking and the disciples and teaching on the hillsides. It's bucolic, it's pastoral, it, you feel really close to nature, it's, it's beautiful. But what we didn't realize is that Nazareth, besides being in Galilee, which means Jesus grew up in that environment, but Nazareth was located on a hill that underneath of which was a major thoroughfare, or, or a, we would call it a highway. People would travel along that way, businessmen, merchants, on their way to the traders and Roman soldiers. And it was a, it was a notorious stopping point, Nazareth. And it meant that it was a place noted for its vices and for the ugly side as usually many urban environments will have. And I'm not saying it was urban in the way that we think of urban, but where, where people, it was one of those places where people, when they thought of it, they thought of, ha, not too much good stuff happens there. And so Nathaniel's response is, come on, Philip. I mean, Nazareth? You, you actually think someone from Nazareth can be the Messiah? And Philip, instead of trying to reason out, uh, he, he doesn't try. He does what, what we really, honestly, it's a great pattern for all of us living in a culture where people who are open to spiritual things but very suspicious of truth, truth claims around Jesus. He says, look, I don't want to try to explain it to you. All I want you to do is just come with me. You come and see for yourself. You judge. I want you to talk to him. I want you to look into his eyes. I want you to ask him the questions that I asked. That's all I'm saying. Just say, what do you got to lose? You have nothing to lose. Come on, come with me. And you, you can feel Nathaniel reluctantly agreeing, right? And he says, all right. So it says that somewhere in there, Nathaniel says, I'll go. And the, the scripture gives it us room to imagine and fill in the blank there. But somewhere along the way, I can see them walking. All right, you're dragging me out here. I'll meet this guy. But I have no expectations whatsoever and as he's walking through, let's just imagine over the hillside at some level, moving through perhaps a grove of trees, Jesus is there in a distance. Before Nathaniel says a word, before they're close enough to converse, Jesus does something that he, he does not normally do. He actually shouts out to him and points at, the, at Nathaniel, if we, if we can see it. He's, look, it's fairly emphatic. The word, the word that we use for, for behold is, you know, we don't go behold. We go, look at that. Look at that guy. And Jesus is saying, I want you to see. As Nathaniel is moving through from a distance still with Philip, walking towards Jesus, Philip says, there he is. They're walking towards him. Jesus, before they get close enough to really talk, Jesus says, behold, look at that man. There is a man right there. Behold. A true is an Israelite indeed. And he adds one more phrase, in whom there is no deceit, guile. So before anything happens, his first thing is, I want you to see a man who is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit and guile. This guy is an honest man. You know what? When Jesus gives an estimation of someone's core, he is saying, this is who you are. So he calls him out from a distance, and he says, I know you. You are an Israelite indeed, and you are a person who tells it like it is. You, there is a candidness, an honesty, a lack of pretense in you, a sincerity of love for God. When he says Israelite, you know, that, that's a, we don't use that phrase, but during Christmas time, 
You'll notice Israel shows up a lot in our songs and our carols. You read the Bible story, you talk about is king of Israel. Israel's a nation today, still in the news. What did, where, does, where did that name come from? Where did it start? How did it come into existence? What did it mean to be a true Israelite? An Israelite indeed, Jesus says. What does that mean? Where did it happen? You know, again, we recall, many of us, that God, the Bible teaches us in the book of Genesis that God called out a man and he said, out of you, out of your loins, out of your lineage, there will come a people. And out of this people, I've chosen to bless you, Abraham. And out of you will come a people. And out of this people will come forth a deliverer. And he will change this world. He will be the life giver. And, and Abraham walked by faith and he trusted God even though he had no... And there's this amazing account. Abraham ends up having two children, um, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God says Isaac is the promised one. And, through Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons. Esau and Jacob. Esau actually is the older of the two. He's the one that actually has the family blessing that, that God said was associated with the firstborn male in, this, in their lineage. But Jacob, this is, again, just a quick background. Jacob, the son who is slightly younger, barely, he, he and his mother connive and manipulate to supplant Esau. And they actually trick father Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob. And Jacob gets the blessing. And then when his brother Esau finds out, and you can read about this in Genesis, he says when he, when he finds out, he basically comes up to him and he says, you just wait, because as soon as father is not here, you're dead. <laughs> and both his mother and his, because it said Esau wept bitterly when he found out the blessing was given away. It was, and that's a whole huge study right there. Jacob... Jacob, under the advice of his mother, takes off. He's running for his life, right? Um, he, he gets to his uncle Laban's house. There's a number of things that happen in his life. Anyway, years pass. He gets ready to go back to meet Esau. There's this reunion. Many years have passed. Both of them have been prospered. He has no idea how it's going to go. He's scared to death. He sends his family along. He waits by a brook. And it says that in the night something happens that's remarkable. You read about it in Genesis 32. There's this very mysterious thing that occurs. Again, I'm explaining why, how we get the name Israel, which is connected to what Jesus said Nathaniel was truly one of. And, and it says that Jacob, as he's waiting, that he has something occurs. He has this, it says he wrestles with a man, but the, the implication is it was an angel of God. And he says, I've seen, I've wrestled with God. And in this wrestling match, he, the, the, his hip is actually thrown out. He walks for the rest of his life with a limp. But one of the things that also occurs is he says, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And then the, and the angel of the Lord says, well, what is your name? He says, my name is Jacob, supplanter. That's what it meant. He says, no longer. You have a new name. And here is where the name Israel comes from. He says, your name is now no longer Jacob. It is now Israel. Prince with God, ruler with God, one ruled by God. And it marked a change in his life. He had a new name. And from that, that's where that name came from. And so it, it meant when Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, here is one truly, a seeker of God, one ruled by God, a devout man, a man of sincerity, and, and in whom there is no guile, and, and no deceit. It's almost like he's saying, if you can catch it, Jesus is making a play on words. Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Jacob means guile, beguiler. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob. That's his initial, initial word to him. 
And, and you notice what happens here. Go, go back to the passage. It says that as he's coming to him, when he says this, he, he, Nathaniel, is, it's, like, um, it's like somebody hits him with this word. It's like, wham, the word hits him, boom. And he goes, how do you know me? Because the word cut through, it's interesting how Jesus could summarize the essential core of this man with one phrase. It's, it's like, we were, some of us were talking about this last night after service. We were saying, man, what would, it, what would the Lord say if he was summarizing who we were at the core with one sentence? We were thinking about, what would, you know, sometimes, we're, sometimes just thinking, who really am I? What would he say I am? What he said was, here is a man who loves God and is ruled by God and has no deceit in him. Sincerity in this man. And so Nathaniel says, it's like the Lord opens him up. It's like he dug through everything, gets it right there. And it just before he even says a word, he's got him. He says, he says, who are you? How do you know me? Did he tell you about me? Philip, did you tell him about me? I didn't say anything. I told you. He knows things, right? <laughs> and, so, and so Philip, so Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And then Jesus says something else. He says, oh, I saw you. When did you see me? I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now, this is not a fig tree. But for a moment, let's think of it as one. <laughs> and the idea is, Okay, here's why a lot of people think that what Jesus taught, when he's talking about Jacob in, these, in this exchange, they think that Nathaniel was actually thinking about Messiah and praying and looking. He was maybe even thinking about this wrestling match with God that Jacob had, that there was the, the context of what Jesus is talking to him about were things that he was thinking about. And he, a lot of times we will sit by something. Listen, you do this. I do this. We'll sit by the ocean maybe. We have opportunities, and this city is a beautiful place. We can go and sometimes just look deep, long, think about God, think about our life, think about what the Lord is doing. We begin to engage some deep thoughts, think long thoughts, as I like to say. We get below the surface of life, because so much of life is lived on the surface, but periodically we pull away, and we sit, as it were, underneath the fig tree, and we think, and we listen, and we listen for God, and we talk, and we, we're open, and we're pondering. And I think Jesus is saying, listen, listen, my friend, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, and Nathaniel says, well, how, do you know, how do you know this? And he says, listen, if, look, I, and, and, and notice what he says here. Nathaniel answers and he says to him, oh, rabbi, now, rabbi, teacher, I, he says, and it's one of the great utterances in all the scripture concerning Jesus. He says, rabbi, teacher, I, he says, I know, he goes, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus has said, an Israelite indeed, he says, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus says, he marvels, and he says, ha, I showed you this and you believe? He goes, I tell you something, you haven't seen anything yet. And then Jesus, again, why does he do this? Because you read it and you would not know it, but Jesus then draws back in time, back into the scriptures, which is why it's good for us 
if we're serious about following the Lord, it's good for us to do more than just read the New Testament. It's good for us to know the Old, because Jesus constantly was referring back to it. And he does it again. And he says, listen, you haven't seen anything yet. And then he makes this statement that doesn't make sense initially. It's like, where did it come from and why would he say it? But look what he says. But it connects everything that we've been talking about. He says, I tell you, truly I say to you, look at verse 41, I mean 51, truly I say to you that hereafter from this time forward, you, you, think, you, you think that's something. He goes, you, haven't, you don't know what's going on in front of your eyes. You will see heaven open up to you and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, that phrase is like, well, what does that mean? What is that? He's, gonna, literally, now he go, he's going back in time. If you were to go to Genesis 28, that you would find that, remember I mentioned that Jacob was running away? from home because he was afraid for his life. Well, early on, he runs away and he comes to this place and he's sleeping, the Bible says, on a stone. That was his pillow, a stone for his pillow. And he's afraid, he's running for his life, his future, he doesn't know what's gonna happen. And in this place, he has a dream. And, the, and Genesis 28 talks about the dream that he has. And in this dream, he, he sees this ladder that reaches up to heaven and God is there. But there are angels ascending and descending in Jacob's dream. This Israel light. And in this dream, as he's seeing it, he wakes up. And he goes, oh, yeah. He says, surely, he's thinking of it like it's the gate to heaven. He says, surely God is in this place. And I knew it not. And he called it Bethel, house of God. And he created an altar. He poured oil. It's amazing. Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. Do you understand what's, it's like he says to Philip, do you understand what's happening in front of your eyes? He goes, the very, the very things that were anticipated in Jacob's dream are happening before your eyes. Heaven is touching earth before you in me. And that is what Christmas really is all about. The light has come. God intersecting humanity it's about God present among us. It's about Jesus' coming, that we celebrate the coming of light that has changed everything. So what does that mean for us? You know, obviously, it connects back to that Isaiah verse where we talked about how a light has come in the darkness, right? But when we think about what does it mean for us, we, we, I'm going to suggest that there's a couple of things, and we'll, we'll quickly touch them. Uh, that, that Christmas is meant for us to be. So we'll draw these things back together, back to when Isaiah said, the one who is coming brings light. All right, so Christmas is a time for, number one, I'll just put this up there, welcoming him, Jesus, this light, into the dark places of our lives. And I really, again, cannot overemphasize the value in being intentional about welcoming the Lord into the dark places of our lives. I always think of darkness, you know, when you're little, you're afraid of dark, the dark. Uh, and I, I think about the things that we're afraid of. I think about the things that maybe some of us are facing right now. I've had a number of people, not everybody, but a number of people come and tell me that they have some anxiety and some fear about the way things are going with the economy. A lot of us have wrestled, wrestled with the idea of, well, what, is, what are we supposed to do now at this time? What does trusting God look like in times like these? What does it mean to give our lives to the Lord when things are uncertain? What does it mean to live in a covenantal way? What does it mean to trust God and keep doing what we're doing and honor the Lord in times like these? What does it mean to draw closer to the Lord in these dark times? I also think of darkness, because darkness is one of people, you know, when you're a little one, you're afraid, and that's why a lot of times you have a little nightlight, because the light makes us feel better. 
And, light, and not only that, I was thinking about it, when you're dark, what, what, what happens when something's dark? You can't see where you're going. Light lets us see, but a lot of times we can't see. And, and so darkness cloud, is our future. When we can't see, it can cause things inside of us to get really filled with it. So we don't see it, but the light welcoming Christ into the places in our lives where we can't see where we can't even see the light at the, some, it's not just about, it's about also about hope because there are times where we can't even see any light at the end of the tunnel. But the, listen, loved ones, the light has come. Christmas is a time to remind ourselves that he has come and he is present and he is available. And it's a time for drawing close to the Lord. It's a time for welcoming him in. And this is the second, second idea here, is that the, Christmas is a time for really moving towards Jesus. And I'm going to say that if we're intentional about moving towards Jesus, and I put the emphasis on the moving, if we'll, if we'll make it a priority to draw closer to the Lord, to, to think about the Lord, to interact with our life with, uh, with Him, to, in a sense, just say, Lord, I want to, in this time, I want to move towards Bethlehem. I want to move to the place where I really sit with the value and the meaning and the blessing of what this time represents. Because a lot of times when we, we miss, I think we miss the blessing. I think that we, we forget that this is a time, listen, it's a time for worship. It's a perfect time for prayer, for pondering. It's a perfect time for sitting underneath our fig tree and thinking about the Lord. And what are the implications of that light? And what does that mean in terms of my own finality? What is the hope that really is centered in this coming? that this one who was born was different than anyone else, that he has come to give his life. And when he gave his life, death did not hold him, and death could not hold him. And, it, and he said, and if it cannot hold me, it means that I give you also this promise of life. It's a promise that sometimes seems almost too good to be true. It's almost too incredible to believe. But we are invited to marvel at the simplicity of what God has done. And the last thought here, literally, it is a time for letting go, listen, of our cynicism and for embracing the one who really knows our deepest longings. He knows, this whole exchange between Nathaniel, it's like Jesus was saying, I know you. I know you. And when he realized that he was known and that the Lord knew him, that then he became open. And, and, as, and I'm saying this, this is a time for both drawing near to God and accepting his embrace. He knows our dreams. He knows our thoughts. He knows us in the secret places. Not, God knows. And listen, he has a word for us at this season. He had a word for Nathaniel. He has a word for us. If we're willing to slow down, embrace the time, he will give us his word for our lives at this time. How important as we move towards Christmas because right after Christmas comes what? A new year. What a time to ponder. What a time to reflect. What a time to interact with the Lord and think and be open. There's a song that we're closing with. It's called, You're the Only One. I just want to sh refer to one thing in the song. Because in the, in the main stanza of the song, it's just right in the middle. Again, there's the theme, the one we've been waiting for. There's this part. And when we get to it, today in a few minutes, I really want us to hear this song as like it's a prayer because look what it says. Father, draw me close and sing to me the song of your great love. And then the phrase that got me, 
and may it melt the things that hold my heart till you're the only one. Lord, let this be a time of melting away the things that hold my heart, that keep me back. Lord, as we are here before you in this morning time, we've sat with your word, we've listened, we've watched, we've, we've interacted with it, we've you know, I, I pray that we would, we would be intentional. I ask you, Lord, that part of what would happen because we've been here is that many of us would be more motivated to be intentional about drawing near to you at this special time of the year, that we would join with people all over the world who are bringing their hearts softly before you and marveling at this amazing thing that you have done, your coming, your birthday, as it were, the entrance of a new thing that God has done that means so much for us. Can we think about it? Can we reflect on it? Can we be grateful for it? Can we receive your joy in it? Even in these dark times, let the light shine in us, Lord. Let it melt away the things that keep us hard, hold us back, soften us, Lord, we pray. I pray that you bless our time of giving. Many of us, Lord, we will give you the best of our abilities and we will honor you, Lord. And we pray for all things, our future, the days ahead. We put our lives in your hands. We trust you. We ask for your blessing. Bless this time of giving. Bless our closing song, which is our closing prayer, really. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.